When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, I normally like doing this show because um, I love doing this show because to some extent we get to focus on other countries' problems yeah. and not how broken our own country is and how we seem to think it's normal to have a civilian population that's better armed than most foreign militaries and yeah. uh, how they're increasingly targeting children in mass shootings. But uh, yeah, here we are kicking off a show with another fucking mass shooting in Texas, the NRA convention is in Texas on Friday as well. So I'm sure they'll be thoughtful about all this. Yeah, those people can go fuck off. Um, I, I just, I, I, it's like unfathomable to me that, you know, I, I don't know what to say that, that don't people don't always Quick, say. I just I mean, watched I, Chris Murphy, Senator Chris Murphy, friend of the pod on the floor, like just so angry. It looked like he was about to rip up his desk and hulk it and throw it to the other side. I, I mean, I guess you just have to, to say, as I think Chris Murphy would, as someone who never gives up on this, that like you just cannot allow yourself to be numbed to it. I have, you know, I have an elementary school age daughter and I, I like the idea of dropping her off. At, I drop her off at school every day and it's always like a slightly painful moment you know to like Mm -hmm. give her a hug and but you know the idea of 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 her not being there when i go i I just i can't even what these parents are going through and and that this country and you know in states like texas frankly prioritize like people having military weapons over the lives of their children like is the ultimate expression of of who they think this country is. It's pure nihilism. Yeah, because it's not after mass shootings like in El Paso, they have not made it harder to get guns. They have made it easier in some instances. Like concealed carry goes away, and it's just it's outrageous. The point I keep coming back to, Tommy, like is that we sat in fucking meetings in the White House Situation Room for hour after hour after hour, mobilizing trillions of dollars to meet a absolute like zero tolerance for someone you know terrorist yeah like a terrorist you know killing a few people like if 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 a terrorist killed this many people with a truck bomb we'd like go to war in three countries mm-hmm. because of that right mm-hmm. i took an airplane today and i'm still wondering why the fuck i'm taking my shoes off yeah. you know the, the the fact that this country has such warped national security priorities that it it compelled us to spend trillions of dollars and fight wars in like more countries than people are even aware of because of the risk of the kinds of attacks that kill 
less people than are killed each week in mass shootings in this country is the ultimate insane statement of a country's priorities. And then Texas in 2021, in August 2021, passed a law allowing permitless carry. I mean, it's just, it's outrageous. You can walk around with a semi-automatic weapon strapped to your fucking leg in Texas, but take your shoes off to get on an airplane because yeah. 20 years ago, some some guy like tried to light a match by a shoe. This is just insanity. Well, we're going to try to channel yes, our yeah, rage. Yeah into action, because that's kind of what Crooked Media does here. We also have a great show today. I'm going to pivot to a happier sounding voice. Uh, we talk about a lot of stuff. We're going to talk about U.S. policy toward Taiwan, Biden's trip to Asia, uh, the latest from Ukraine, a plot to assassinate George W. Bush. That was a wild story. Uh, Somalia, charges of anti-Semitism, fascism, and U.S. policy towards Israel, and then some fun with MAGA grifters, and then maybe a little Boris partying at the end. I mean, have time? why not? Let's, you have, yeah. to. You have to. Okay. Mix that in. And Ben, you did... An excellent interview today with a VIP. What are we going to hear? Yeah, we got uh, uh, another cabinet-level official here, Ambassador nice. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, and the U.S. is the chair of the Security Council this month. We talk about the food crisis um, uh, because of the war in Ukraine, which is taking up a lot of her attention. Um, we talk about what it's like to deal with Russia at the U.N. and oh, what the U.N. might brutal. need to change, given the fact that Russia obstructs everything at the Security Council with their veto. Um, and we talk a bit about her efforts on a range of other humanitarian issues, including uh, trying to get assistance into Syria, which does not get as much attention as, as other issues. So um, definitely worth checking out. Oh, cool. I'll definitely listen to that. And I will say on sale day for the paperback of After the Fall. There we go. This is the day to get it fresh off the printing presses. Buy the book. Buy the book. It helps. If you buy it in the first couple weeks, the paperback's out. That means they'll keep putting it on those tables in those bookstores, and that will really help this book have a life uh, as a paperback. So please, please. Got to be Kelly you. and Conway. Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. let's start with some news from President Biden's first trip to Asia as president. So Biden went to South Korea and then Japan. Uh, at a press conference in Tokyo, President Biden and Japanese prime minister were asked how Japan and the U.S. would respond if China tried to invade Taiwan. Good question. So first, Biden said, our policy towards Taiwan has not changed at all. Then he goes into sort of an aside about how important it is that Putin pay a price for invading Ukraine. Then he says China's flirting with disaster by flying jets over Taiwan. And then he sort of reiterates that the U.S. supports the one China policy, but added, it does not mean that China has the jurisdiction to go in and use force to take over Taiwan. Then the reporter follows up, and this is where it gets complicated and interesting. Here's a clip. You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's a commitment we made. That's a commitment we made. We are not, look, here's the situation. We agree with a one China policy. We signed on to it and all the attendant agreements made from there. But the idea that, that it could be taken by force just taken by force is just not is just not appropriate. It will dislocate the entire region, and be another action similar to what happened in in uh, in Ukraine. So, real quick, the the gist of the one China policy is that Biden mentioned there is that the U.S. recognizes the Chinese government in Beijing, but also believes you know Beijing and Taiwan need to sort out their historical differences peacefully. We can go into that history if you want, Ben. Yeah. But also, we arm Taiwan uh, and help it defend itself. So, after the press conference ended. Ben and I got a flurry of emails from uh, White House press corps folks. The White House officials told reporters that Biden's comments were to change in policy. But this is like the third time, I think, that he has suggested 
otherwise when it comes to Taiwan. He's leaned into a more of a hawkish position. Obviously, his words take on added meaning given what's happening in Ukraine and because the words were spoken in Japan uh, where this threat feels even more real. Ben, what do you think is going on here? Is Biden overstating the policy and then walking it back? Is that the ultimate form of strategic ambiguity, a term we should explain? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. And first of all, I will say in that clip, it's always interesting <laughs> when the reporter's like, ask a question and the answer is she's like you are yeah like, 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 she did not expect to get yeah, the like, answer like she expected to get the brush off but ben politico had a description yeah. of all the the sort of senior officials in the front row and they said that rama Emanuel's eyes like bulged out of his head yeah yeah well i can say i've seen that <laughs> you've uh, seen that not, not good when it happens um I, look so first of all this is a hugely impactful statement and yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and what was particularly kind of unusual or strange to me in the answer is when he says that's a commitment we made Right. Because it's actually not. not like no. we, the U.S. has, does, we have, no treaty. Um, just to be very clear with people, like with Japan, we have a treaty. They are a treaty ally like a NATO ally. And so if Japan is invaded by China, we have an obligation. We have a commitment we made to come to its defense. And we also have bases in Japan. Right. So we have like a military presence. Like Article 5. For that, NATO. yeah, it's the same thing, right? We do not have that with Taiwan. We do have a commitment to, to kind of help support their military, but it is not like a, a defense commitment like we will go to war to defend Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I will say that the one China policy that Biden referenced does feel like a, a bit rickety here mm-hmm. in the sense that just to do the quick history piece of this, the government for Ta- of Taiwan for a long time was basically the Chiang Kai-shek exiles from mainland China. The people who lost the Chinese Civil War to the Communist Party moved to Taiwan, where there, by the way, already were a bunch of people. And they kind of set up this government that was an autocracy, a U.S.-backed autocracy. And they claimed that they were also the government of China. When the United States uh, repaired relations with the People's Republic of China, part of what we did is we said, we recognize there's only one China, but everybody kind of thought- Thank you, Dick Nixon, by yeah, the way. Well, shout out, Tricky Dick. <laughs> shout out. It was the ultimate like kick a can down the road and assume <laughs> right. that it all sorted itself out. Right. Well, what's happened ever since the, the Taiwan Relations Act around you know the Carter administration is that you've had the Taiwanese government become a democracy. You've had the Taiwanese government really lose its roots in that kind of mainland Chinese exile community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're they don't want to have anything to do with China. They don't want to be swallowed up by uh, by the People's Republic of China, which has also become much more belligerent. And the kind of negotiated settlement that they once envisioned, where you might have one country, two systems in China and Taiwan, they looked at that promise broken in Hong Kong, and the Taiwanese are like, we don't want any part of right, this. Right. So the idea that the U.S. needs to think about what does that mean, that is an important conversation. The problem is saying out outrightly that you would go to war for Taiwan when we haven't made that kind of formal diplomatic commitment is that is that ironclad like how do the chinese react to that the taiwanese might want to like keep the strategic ambiguity because they don't want to provoke china into being more aggressive because yeah. they're trying to get out in front of the us uh, getting more involved militarily so look i understand what he's speaking to which is like he doesn't want to look like he's hiding behind some gobbledygook diplomatic language because usually you stand up and say well, we have one China policy and we recognize you know the three communiques from mm-hmm. decades ago. But this is one where if you if you can't explain after the fact what 
that means, uh, I think that that it doesn't really help add clarity. Yeah, know? it's all it's all like clearly Biden is trying to signal that he thinks it would be immoral, horrific, evil for China to all just right, take all true. right yeah. there. It's always funny though when you sort of lean too far over policy, and then a bunch of senior officials have to give statements. They're like, "No, nothing changed. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, here. Not, what are you talking about? Nothing." But you're right that he you know your lying eyes. He said this now like multiple times in very different venues. He said yeah. it in like a town hall once, I think. Yes. And so clearly, Joe Biden. Believes this, it's where he like is. I, I, like in that matters. He's the president, but it, it does kind of call into question though. Like, what does that mean? Like, yeah. how do we square a status quo in which the United States formally says there's only one China and Taiwan is a part of it, with the idea that actually no, this is a democracy uh, that has moved in its own direction that wants nothing to do with China, and the Chinese are building up their military to potentially invade that country. This is a huge flash button issue. And so I think that there's there should be, uh, I, I think, more transparency and discussion about, like, what is our commitment? What are we willing to do? Uh, why are we willing to do it? And and what does it mean for our, our, our China policy writ large? Yeah, for sure. Um, a couple more notes from Biden's trip. So Biden met with the Quad, which is how NSC nerds try to brand meetings between uh, the U.S., Australia, India, and Japan for some reason. Um in one of his press avails, Biden said that when he gets back home, he will talk to Secretary Yellen about potentially lifting U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods. Wall Street liked that a lot. Uh, Biden met with the new prime minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, uh, for the first time. Shout out to our Aussie friends for uh, taking out Scott Morrison, the uh, McDonald's. Yeah, send him back pooper. to McDonald's. Yeah. <laughs> send him back to McDonald's. Um, a dozen or so <laughs> countries announced the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which basically sounds like an intention to work together to try to forge new diplomatic agreements around trade climate change, supply chain resiliency, and sort of tax and anti-corruption measures. Uh, Taiwan was not a part of that announcement, notably. And then finally, Biden was asked if he had a message for North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. He said, hello. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good, That's right? That's a pretty good line, yeah. Uh, uh, any meta takeaways in the rest of the trip for you, Ben? I mean, the, like, look, they are clearly, well, first of all, like the Albanese win, like huge win for yeah. the planet. Uh, great work. Clap Aussie it up. World does. Labor you Party did it. well. The Independent Party did well. The, the Greens. Yeah, the Greens. Like, uh, and, and I think, you know, look, if you look at Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, you've, you know, you've seen a succession of center left victories. Hopefully that spreads the United Kingdom as we're moving around the Commonwealth here. Um I think that they want to demonstrate that these relationships that they have in the Asia-Pacific region or the Indo-Pacific region, as it was rebranded mm. in the Trump years, Great. which is part of the, the point is that India, they want to be a part of these conversations. They, they want to, and this is a Kurt Campbell special, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like our former colleague, Kurt Campbell. I emailed him today because yeah. he got a shout out from the that. Australians. Um, but He wrote me back while they were refueling in uh, Alaska. Dil he did. Diligent well, see, he's, he's like he's on it. He's, always, guy, he's yeah. always working. Um, but one of the things that we used to always talk about is like, can you turn these relationships that we have in Asia into kind of a, an architecture? Like in in, in the transatlantic uh, relationship, you have you know NATO and you mm -hmm. have you know G seven, which is a very European centric organization, even though you have Japan in right. there, and you have you know all manner of uh, transatlantic institutions, the OSCE, a lot of acronyms. In, in Asia Pacific, you have the U.S. has a bunch of allies, and and they're trying to create connectivity among those allies that begins to look like an architecture like we have in in the U.S. and European relationship. So the Quad is an effort 
the, the quad also refers to the U.S. and France and right. Germany and the U.K. Having, so, so I think they're trying to kind of signal like we're going to stitch together these relationships into something that's more of a structure and and we're going to engage the 10 Southeast Asian countries. That's ASEAN. And we're going to you know go to the East Asia Summit where we meet with ASEAN. The, the, the challenge with this is that, you know, what what is the what at the end of the day? And, and I think that the trade and investment framework thing that you mentioned, you know, raises one of the awkward realities for them, which is that the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade agreement was that before. And the Japanese you know? prime minister said, like, well, I wish you'd get back into the TPP, but yeah. this is OK. We'll talk and, about this. Yeah. So, like, th- th- that's a formal trade agreement that the U.S. negotiated that then all the other parties to that agreement joined it, but the U.S. pulled out because Trump was against it. Okay, and maybe, Hillary. And maybe and Hillary. So maybe you don't like free trade agreements, but the question is, can this become something that is is actually meaningful and is not just something you announce on a trip, but something that that has depth and, and, and weight to it? So I think, look, they're drawing the outlines of what they would like the future of collaboration in this region to look like. They want yeah. India in the deal. They want these countries talking not just to the United States, but to each other. That's all good, but there's just a lot of follow through that's going to have to come behind it. Take a lot of time. Uh, Last really quick thing Uh, you mentioned New Zealand. Uh, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is in the US. She's going to New York, DC, and Boston. It's mostly a trade mission, but she's giving the commencement at Harvard University. Very fancy. Congratulations. What is TBD, however, is whether she will meet with Joe Biden in DC because she got COVID. Or come to Pazzi of the World on May 14th. Yeah, she's invited here. Well, that's what I'm going to say. So she got COVID, she had to isolate. There's some sort of like, I don't know, they're, they're trying to figure out if she can get in there to see Biden. I don't know. It's been like more than 10 days since her diagnosis, the anxiety. They could just sit outside on the porch outside the yeah. oval, whatever. But yeah, what I'm trying course. to say is, Prime Minister Ardern, if you want to fill the void of not having a Biden meeting, give us a call. Come Always on the show. welcome at this at this table. Huge fans. I, like I say, I think, he, look, it's really important that, that the U.S. express like support for leaders trying to do the right thing. <laughs> so I yeah, hope that they're able to meet her. You know, we like She's the, like one of the most successful leaders of the last half decade. Well, and Trump wraps his arms around people like, you know, Victor Orban. And yeah. like, I think we should be less bashful on the, the center left progressive side of things in, you know, backing up our people around the yeah. world. Yeah, I, th- I think it's just a COVID thing. And they're kind of like- No, no, I know. And this is not a shot at that. I'm just saying, I hope it works out. Yeah, yeah me yeah, too. Yeah. Me too. Okay. Uh, let's talk about Ukraine because the war has been raging for exactly three months uh, as we record. So a quick little roundup of news. Uh, A guy named Boris Bondarev, a diplomat at Russia's mission to the United Nations in Geneva, resigned, went public with his criticism. Then I hope this guy has been approached by some intelligence service and offered some protection because this kind of stuff gets you killed. Yeah, you get poisoned. By Putin. Yeah, Yeah, somewhere like you have tea in London and all of a sudden things go south. Um, Russia has been caught stealing Ukrainian grain reserves, just in case you didn't think Putin was a monster. Russian ships have taken Ukrainian grain to Syria and to parts of uh, Crimea that they control. Russia is also blockading Ukrainian ports and preventing food and fertilizer exports, which is exacerbating global shortage and famine. I want to dig into that a little more in a second. Uh, The British government has decided now is a good time to cut direct humanitarian aid in half. Boris had to find a way to pay for all those parties, I guess. Uh, Ukrainian court sentenced a captured Russian soldier to life in prison. The U.S. is now very publicly speculating on secondary sanctions, something we've talked about in the past, ways to punish countries for buying Russian oil or potentially setting like an artificially low cap that you have to pay, like break even for Russia is like $40 a barrel and maybe saying to the international community, you can buy at this price, but any more will sanction the shit out of you. And then the last thing is the first of these American-made 
uh, M777 howitzers are slowly getting deployed. They're active in Ukraine. That means the Ukrainian military now has this very lethal long-range artillery capability so they can fire from even further away than the Russians can. Um, and it comes as fighting in eastern Ukraine is getting more intense and brutal. Zelensky, I think, I don't know if this is for the first time, said that up to 100 Ukrainian soldiers a day are dying or getting killed. Um, so that's a pretty stark casualty count. So, Ben, uh, the New York Times ran an editorial the other day calling on Biden to basically lay out goals in an endgame. They wrote, a decisive military victory for Ukraine over Russia in which Ukraine regains all the territory Russia has seized since 2014 is not a realistic goal. They basically said, you have to tell Zelensky that there's a limit to U.S. support. Get ready to cut a deal. This pissed off basically everyone in Ukraine, a lot of progressives, a lot of conservatives. Where where are you like three months into this? Because you and I talked a lot about like an off-ramp uh, talks between Zelensky and Russia, us facilitating them. But I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Like a lot of people are saying, no, there's a chance for them to roll back Russia completely and maybe, I don't know, check Russian imperialism or militarism for a longer time frame. I think, first of all, like all the things you say speak to kind of a a third phase of the war, right? Like a phase one was this kind of failed effort by Russia to decapitate the Ukrainian government. Phase two was this kind of beginning of the protracted fight that is still ongoing in the Donbass and, and southern Ukraine. This phase is also about just kind of sustainment. And if you look at the different things you mentioned, right, you worry about Will all the assistance to Ukraine start to dry up when it's no longer like the, the headline news, yeah. right? Like a Boris Johnson who jumped on the PR bandwagon, is he going to be there? He went to Kiev like three weeks ago. Yeah, is yeah. he going to be there in, in three months, six months? The sanctions, the sanctions, the holes that emerge in sanctions regimes are when basically other countries around the world are like, oh, we're, we're going to keep buying this Russian oil and we're mm -hmm. going to keep doing business with these people. And then the secondary sanctions you say is, are we going to be willing to kind of go around and sanction other countries, not Russia, but the countries that yeah. continue to do business with Russia, that is harder to do. It is time consuming. It is difficult. It is economically disruptive. But that is going to be required if you really want this pressure to stick on the Russians. And all of this leads to the question of like, well, how does this end if we're in this kind of grinded out, protracted, really deadly uh, fighting in eastern Ukraine, southern Ukraine, and there's this kind of status quo hardening um, I see where the New York Times editorial is coming from, yeah, right? Like if, if you if you want just an end to the killing, you know, if basically someone could say, hey, like, like, you know, go back to the way things were at the beginning of this war, which is kind of what the Times is suggesting. Um, and that's better than all these people dying every day. I understand where that impulse comes from, but very big but. First of all, like, we don't get to decide. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I just, I, I think, you know, whatever you think, the Ukrainians are the one whose country was invaded. And if the Ukrainians don't feel like they can say, yeah, like, you can keep Mariupol and you can keep the whole Donbass if we just have a ceasefire, if they're not going to do that, this is kind of like a, a discussion that assumes we have more agency than I think we do, unless we're willing to say, hey, we're going to stop giving you weapons unless you right. agree to this, which I think... And that's kind of where the Times is getting at, I think. And saying, I don't, like, we might cut off, you know... I wouldn't 40... do that. Yeah. Well, the, to your point, I mean, it, it does seem like President Zelensky has zero 
running room here. I mean, I saw the Kiev Independent said that there was a poll that showed that basically 82% of Ukrainians refused to leave territory under Russian occupation. I think that was the statistic. I mean, he, yeah, he was willing, by the way, to the off ramp uh, uh, advocates, like of which, you know, I've been one in, in, a lot, but like he was willing in the early days of the war. He s- made noises about saying he wouldn't join NATO. Yeah. He made noises about, you know, Crimea, we understand, is there's a status quo there. He sent his defense minister to he, negotiations. And, and then the Russians basically destroyed Mariupol and, you know, committed all manner of war crimes around Kyiv. And you can understand why they're not in a position yet to say, well, you know, these parts of our country are occupied and there are mass deportations and killings happening in those parts of the country. But, you know, the people in Davos say, like, we need an off ramp. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, they want an off ramp. I bet you that the Ukrainians would like an off ramp from the war. Um, I just think it's we we have to be humble about our capacity to 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 dictate that off ramp and we also have to understand here that like you know Vladimir Putin gets a vote too and and the reality is like we did pause this war there there was a negotiated kind of quasi ceasefire for a bunch of years and it's not like that ended the war the Minsk agreements were reached in 2015 yep. so it's just more complicated. Like, I, I understand where this is coming from, but like, I, I think the Ukrainians have to be the ones to dictate um, what kind of end state they can live with. And, you know, we're not, I think, at the point yet where we can tell them three months into this thing, hey, like, we're going to cut you off if you don't uh, agree to, to X, Y, and Z. Here's one area where the clock is really ticking, which is this issue of an impending food shortage, because we've got you know, Russians now, we're learning they're stealing grain from Ukrainian silos. Farmers can't plant for obvious reasons because they're fighting or their fields are being blown up. Russia is sanctioned, so they can't export things. Commercial ships can't get to Ukrainian ports and move their stored grain abroad because the Russian Navy is blockading the ports. Experts are saying that we might have, you know, a couple months before this becomes a huge crisis, especially in poor countries. And on top of that, Russia is a huge exporter of fertilizer. And so I was listening to like a a BBC World Service report today about a farmer, a rice farmer in Thailand, who's not going to be able to have the same crop uh, that he normally has because he can't get his hands on fertilizer. So like this is a ticking time bomb for the world, for the poorest countries in the world more than anybody. Yeah. No, I I talked to Linda Thomas-Greenfield about this, uh, the ambassador to the UN uh, in the interview. Um, I, I think that one of the things that that needs to be done is, you know, we some of the remaining islands of of support or not support, but kind of fence sitting vis-a-vis Russia, are in parts of the world that are quite vulnerable to these food shortages. And so, I think diplomatically, you have to stitch together an effort to try to unlock at least some of the flow of this um, of this wheat and other uh, and fertilizer from. Odessa poured in Ukraine from from you know all the blockaded material that's not getting out of Ukraine like this is one where it shouldn't just be the US and Europe like um everybody has skin in this game and yeah. I do think that if you have a different assortment of countries in this uh vis-a-vis Russia saying like you know you you are going to kill untold numbers of people in all parts of the world and unleash greater instability like you just got to keep pushing and pushing on this. Yeah. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to talk about an assassination plot against George W. Bush. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash Sirius XM. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. I, listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Yeah. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Okay, Ben, so here is a very weird story. Uh, the FBI arrested a Columbus, Ohio man named Shihab Ahmed Shihab for allegedly trying to get four to six individuals from Iraq into the U.S. via Mexico to kill former President George W. Bush. The attack was supposed to be in the name of ISIS. This guy was, I guess, under FBI surveillance the whole time. So presumably there wasn't yeah, a wanna... huge risk. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was talking to a confidential U.S. informant. Yeah. Doesn't seem like Bush was in any real danger, but he did travel to Dallas and take video around Bush's home. So it's scary. I don't I never know. The FBI always like announces and, and rolls up these plots where like they've been communicating yeah. with some 19 year old, gave him an inert bomb said planted at this parade, like something like that. And it's always hard to judge like how real the threat was or was not, or if this is just, you know, an idiot that got um, pulled into something. But uh, I don't know, caught my eye. Yeah, no, it would. I I think that the way in which you try to separate it is like, is there some kind of formal 
terrorist organizational planning behind this? You know, is it like, is there an Al Qaeda cell somewhere plotting this or whatever? This has the flavor of like a radicalized individual, like texting with the FBI, you yes. know, so yeah. feels less um, acute than, than other threats, although it reminds you uh, what's out there. It, it reminded me of that Iranian, you know, that, that, that plot where allegedly they were going to smuggle people across the Mexican border and mm-hmm. then to assassinate DC, right? the Saudi ambassador in Cafe Milano. Yeah. And like a Georgetown, um, like, yeah, restaurant. yeah, yeah. Which, which again, like, I, I, you know, there may very well have been some planning behind it, but you know, sometimes the ambition outstrips like anything that is actually going to happen, you know? Yeah, I, that, mean, I remember you, Ben and I used to share an office in the basement of the West Wing. I remember that one breaking and kind of looking at each other being like, what? I don't think that, Yeah, like that, that's crazy. Like, uh, but th- this one feels, I mean, that one though, there was like, I think some chatter and some, yeah. you know, some, you know, the potential IRGC involvement. Th- this, this, uh, this feels like a guy sitting at his computer talking to the FBI. Yeah. You know? Uh, speaking of counterterrorism, so uh, last week, the New York Times reported that President Biden signed an order redeploying hundreds of special operations forces to Somalia. So that reversed a decision by Trump that he made on his way out the door to pull about 700 guys, ground troops from the country. Biden is not sending that full number back in. Force is going to be capped at 450. But he's also given the Pentagon the authority to target about a dozen leaders of al-Shabaab, which is a terrorist group in Somalia that pledged allegiance to al-Qaeda back in 2012. So that's why I think they're treated pretty differently. Um, The Somali parliament selected a new president in early May. They welcomed this announcement. So Ben, it seems like this might be, I can't tell how big of a change this is because some of the reporting suggested that U.S. military trainers were basically flying in and out of Somalia for two months at a time. That approach was wasteful, ineffective, dangerous, kind of like screwing up the mission. but I don't know. I mean, it's also kind of hard for me to judge at this point, like a decade after reading yeah. intelligence, how much of a threat al-Shabaab is. Well, and a decade of this approach, you know, which again, like, you know, full disclosure, like the Obama administration pursued, the Trump administration pursued. So this is not one that in any way originated with Biden. But uh, like to me, what uh, one other thing to look at is the 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 pace of drone strikes in Somalia, mm-hmm. which, you know, there have been a lot of allegations of civilian casualties over the years. And and al-Shabaab is still there despite all this this effort. And um, you would like to see more of a focus on the, the, the political viability of Somalia, which is, by the way, also at great risk from these food shortages that we just talked about. Um, and... and like we talk about ending forever wars, um, this is a reminder that's not just Afghanistan. Like that's Somalia as well as, as other places. So um, I think w- the thing to watch is: a, is this a training mission? Is there an uptick in drone activity and kind of U.S. kind of direct military activity in Somalia or not? If it's just like something to facilitate additional training, I think that's less of an escalation than if more special ops leads to more drone strikes, which leads to kind of just more. Um, you know, U.S. involvement in, in, in a conflict that is, you know, doesn't have appear to have a military solution when it's been going on for not just a decade, but in some ways, several decades. Yeah. And I think it's a question of, is this really a super targeted effort to get al-Shabaab leadership? Or are there going to be a bunch of drone strikes 
on you know fighters what is assumed to be a dozen guys in the back of a truck who are presumed to be fighters that are doing something that looks nefarious to someone yeah exactly and that's a big distinction yeah and and you got to make sure that all these countries in the region are are on board here and and rowing in the same direction and so it's not just a kind of a u.s uh and that's generally been the case you've had kenya play a big role here but uh you know i i don't think turning the escalation dial back up um makes a lot of sense at this point. Yeah, and I'm not suggesting that the uh, super targeted sort of intelligence version is perfect either. By the way, this is another reason why there should be a new authorization for the use of military force out of Congress, right? Because like we are in Somalia at war under the authority granted to George Bush after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Now the the legal rationale, and I know because it was in the Obama administration too, is that because Al-Shabaab pledged allegiance to al-qaeda like a decade ago they're an associated force and that is past its expiration date and it has been for a long time um this is a reason why if the u.s thinks it should be at war with the terrorist organization in somalia the executive branch should be able to go to congress and say hey congress vote to authorize the deployment of these special forces to somalia that doesn't happen and that's part of the way you get forever wars and again that's on everybody that's on democrats democrats republicans obama biden you know, definitely Congress. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. For sure. Um, okay. Let's dive into the not at all sensitive topic of anti Semitism, nationalism, and support for Israel. Excited? Yeah. It always works out well. It works out yeah. well for everybody. Yeah. So, first, a little background. So, the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, is happening in Hungary this week. President Trump spoke to it via video, so did Tucker Carlson. CPAC Hungary also featured a notorious. Hungarian racist who uses racial epithets to describe black people and refer to Jews as, quote, stinking excrement. I have not seen uh, CPAC Hungary get called out for featuring the speaker or condemned by the ADL or relevant groups. The ADL, however, did condemn the communications director of a progressive group called the Justice Democrats for tweeting a joke about a fictional news outlet called Goy Outsider. He was retweeting an article from the Jewish Insider making a stupid joke Whatever. Now, Ben, I'm not the arbiter of things anti-Semitic or not. I've been called a goy a lot of times in my life, usually my, by my Jewish friends who make fun of me for being the most Aryan-looking yeah. person uh, they've ever seen. You, I think I've probably called you a goy. <laughs> but I, I don't know if you have a... I don't know if I've called you a goy outsider, but yeah. <laughs> I think I've called you separately a goy and an outsider. <laughs> Do you have a gut check on goy? Does that one ring your uh, your any bells for you? Is Does that, that bother canceled? you? I, I don't... I have uh, no idea. I Look, I, I, I this is worth... Look, <laughs> the hungry situation... You know, Viktor Orban is an anti-Semite who engages in d- not just dog whistles, but you know, dog shouts at at George Soros as a right. shadowy international all day every year, day, seeking to control Hungarian politics. Like I've been to Budapest and been shown, like the the kind of rehabilitation of 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 uh, like fascist era Hungarian collaborative governments and the diminishment of uh, what happened to. The Jews in Hungary, in part because of the collaboration of their own government, like the bill of goods that one could assemble on Viktor Orban as an anti-Semite is very clear. What he's also done is he forged an alliance with Bibi Netanyahu. There was a total alliance of convenience wherein um, Viktor Orban would block EU efforts to support the Palestinians. And then Bibi Netanyahu would say, oh, no, Viktor Orban, he's a good guy. And oh, by the way, like, Victor Orban's first political consultants when he ran for prime minister in 2010 
had been previously Bibi Netanyahu. So there's just kind of this weird nexus. It's a right wing thing. It's not an ethno religious thing, but it, it's it's uncomfortable. And look, I, I write about this in my book out on Paperback today about being spied on by Black Cube, an outfit of former Mossad agents who were also spying on Hungarian civil society on behalf of Viktor Orban. It's a very strange set of bedfellows happening here. To get to the ADL point, though, this is it's a total absurd joke uh, for them to be singling out like that, that kind of speech, you know, goy outsider as as the issue. Like the right. issue. And I talk about this with with Hungarian Jews in my book, like the rise of right wing ethno nationalism is a problem. It doesn't end well for Jews. It's a problem specifically for the Jewish history. people specifically. These are not forces that you want to align yourself with or make alliances of convenience with. It always leads to the worst possible places for Jews. And yes, is there some like hatred directed at Israel that speaks to a, a, a dangerous strain of anti-Semitism? Yes. I would also argue, though, that like the the rise of far right nationalism around the world cries out for attention from organizations like the ADL yeah. that are dedicated to combating anti-Semitism. And this kind of like putting points on the board against the progressive left in this country, like on behalf of Israel, is not the the center of gravity of where people should be focused on anti-Semitism. So let me flesh this out because I agree. And I, I think I, I don't raise this CPAC Hungary and what was said about Walid just to do whataboutism, right? Because that's not that's not what I'm trying to do here. But I think that when charges of anti-Semitism or criticism of you know policy towards Israel is used to just sort of attack political opponents, that's where you get into trouble. For example, you mentioned this last week. Uh, APAC's political action committee is called United Democracy Project. It was ostensibly created to support pro-Israel candidates. The group spent over $2 million attacking a Democratic congressional candidate named Summer Lee in Pennsylvania's 12th district by saying she isn't a real Democrat. But APAC also endorsed over 100 Republican candidates who voted to overturn the 2020 election results. So that's just as cynical an attack as you can get. Including some who have quite flirtatious relationships with far-right nationalists. For sure. The similar group, the Democratic Majority for Israel, DMFI. In 2020, DMFI spent millions of dollars attacking Congressman Jamal Bowman in his primary against then-Congressman Elliot Engel. One of the ads said Bowman had unpaid taxes, and DMFI left it on air despite Engel telling them to pull it. My point is, if you want to attack political candidates for being insufficiently pro-Israel, by all means do. But endorsing insurrectionists and then calling Summer Lee a bad Democrat is just too cynical for me not to call out. Similarly, when the ADL criticizes a dumb joke like Waleed's Goy Outsider and then tells the press specifically, their, their spokespeople said, we did this because his organization, the Justice Democrats, criticizes Israel. That is also bad well, because yeah. you aren't objectively calling out anti-Semitism. You are saying liberals who criticize the Israeli government need to be on notice. We will check your ass. We and will call primary you. your ass. And this is well, but, but even like, more, but the random spokesman for the Justice Democrats, like we're going to fucking destroy your reputation for the rest of your life because you're part of an organization that, you know, criticizes settlement construction. But Donald Trump can go to CPAC Hungary, say whatever he wants. Yes, this but, is the point. But as long as he's up BB's ass, we will never criticize him. And that, that in my opinion, harms efforts to call out and stop anti-Semitism. It is flat out dangerous and disingenuous. It's bullshit. And, and look, if they wanted to sit down and have a debate and say, okay, Justice Democrats, let's sit down and argue about Israeli-Palestinian policy. That'd be one thing. The fact that they run ads 
that don't even that, like this is what is so like this is the biggest tell in the world. They're not even running ads saying here's something that ex congressional candidate said about Israel. Like we believe this. No, they run bullshit ads saying that they're bad Democrats or they're scary this or scary that. It, they're not even willing to engage in that debate. They just kind of you know they, they dump money on people's heads and then call people who point that out anti Semites. You know, and that is that is bad for everybody. Like that that, that is. And and it's the ADL and this whole, like whatever happened to like the the social justice traditions in the American Jewish community, that that literally like used to make arguments on behalf of Israel, like based on on social justice values. Now we're making arguments based on ethno nationalism, which is not the argument that I think is <laughs> the one that ends well for the Jewish people or anybody, anywhere, yeah, anywhere, or anybody. And by the way. There might be some listeners who think you're just defending your buddies in the Justice Democrats or in DSA, the Democratic Socialists. I don't know. I, I've never met most uh, of these people. I, <laughs> just to be clear, like I think when the DSA attacked Jamal Bowman for supporting um, the Iron Dome system, that was incredibly stupid. It I was think, even dumber when they attacked him for, for visiting Israel with right, the J Street trip. So right. I, yeah, like, yeah, I'm more I, than happy. I, to... There, some of the people, uh, some of the leftists who are part of the DSA have been some of the most vicious critics of me personally, of you, of oh, yeah. media, right? So I, we're not yeah. defending our buddies. Like, I, I think I have a little more credibility here to call out what is actually a really bad faith attack against Waleed, Bernie Sanders, uh, Summer Lee, Jennifer Cisneros down in Texas. Like, they're just attacking these groups are pretending to be in support of uh, pro-Israel policies, but they're just attacking progressive Democrats. And I think we should call it out because they're spending a ton of money. And they're pushing people away from a constructive conversation. Especially young yeah. Jews. Yeah. You yeah. know, like it's just anyway. Okay. Well, that will uh, certainly not get us in any trouble on the internet. I, yeah. It's, I've, yeah. Like, I mean, I, I, the last time I, you know, it's great. I waited about this, like, uh, uh, like Pompeo called me an Asemite. So, oh, did he? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, good. honestly, enemies like that, it's kind of a good thing. Uh, speaking of MAGA grifters, Ben. Mike Pompeo. Credits in New York Times for continuing to report on Jared Kushner and Steve Mnuchin's new investment firms. Uh, They pointed out that Jared's final three trips to the Middle East after the election and Mnuchin's Middle East swing after the election, uh, it was cut short by the insurrection, by the way, clearly mixed government and future business interests. They also reported on how both of them hired a bunch of people from their respective sort of government teams, the sort of Abraham Accord teams, to set up these new investment shops, despite not having any investment experience. Um, I think these stories are still kind of missing the other piece of this, which is this inherent suggestion that Jared Kushner is making when he goes to a foreign government for investment money, which is to say, daddy's running again. Yeah. You know, I'll I'll be back in there. Don't you worry. Yeah. I mean, like, this is the thing. I mean, these guys literally cashing in while they're in government, like greasing their post-government careers to the tune of billions of dollars, a scale of corruption that you know, we, we just haven't seen. Unfathomable. Yeah, un, it, but, but also, like, clearly, very clearly trading on the likelihood that, you know, Trump is going to run again. And maybe these guys, you know, think that they're making a down payment on the next administration as well, knowing that people like Jared will deliver the goods for them. And, and also, like, by the way, undermining... I mean, yeah, the quaint notion that we have a president now who has interests like that he's seeking to deal with um, in that region. And these guys are like, no, no, like, you know, wait, wait it out. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll do everything you want. We you got know? you covered. Yeah. The other thing we learned last week is that the Department of Justice is suing disgraced casino magnate Steve Wynn 
for lobbying for Trump on behalf of the Chinese government when he was finance chairman of the RNC. Wynn tried to get a Chinese billionaire dissident deported, and then he tried to help out his business in Macau. So great stuff happening. These are there. the people that, you know... Uh, this is just shocking the, corruption. Well, and it's like, you know, Mnuchin and, and to a lesser extent, Steve Wynn are supposed to be like the, you know more mainstream MAGA grifters, I guess. Like, yeah, they're sort they, of... They've been around for... Like, it just, business people. Everybody, it's just... When you have a corrupt enterprise like this, like, it, it makes... Like, it brings out the worst aspects of... I mean, like, Steve Wynn, you know... He's like, disgraced pretty, for pretty other Pretty disgraceful guy reasons, yeah. to begin with. Um, so I'm not... Suggest- but, like, it is the case that these aren't just, like, the Seb Gorkas and the, you know, Alex Joneses and the... You know, the, this is the entire enterprise of, of this is what Trumpism is about in the end. It's basically about people weaponizing ethno-nationalism and grievance to for personal profit, you know, talking out of one mouth about how tough they are on the Chinese while they're like seeking to deport Chinese billionaires and get like Macau casino licenses. Like it's all a grift, you know. Yeah. I mean, Steve Wynn's just like taking calls from the vice premier and thinking that's just another thing he can trade and, you know, pass the message along to Donald Trump and then help out his casino. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's it's so brazen. Also, he could have avoided these charges if he just filed uh, under FARA, the Foreign Agent Registration Act, but he refused to do it. Yeah, Which, yeah, you know, yeah. probably tells you everything you need to know about how these rich guys think about laws. It, well, that's exactly the point. It tells you that a guy like Steve Wynn thinks that if, oh, if I do my RNC duty, like I don't have to follow the law. And that's what they think. They think the law doesn't apply to them. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, in fact, Trump did uh, pardon uh, Elliot Broidy, who was accused yeah. of, you know, sort of similar crimes. He pardoned Steve Bannon. So pardon all these guys, jokers, Mike Flynn. And like, so they, they have already like we, we, we always have the, the threats to democracy and where we're we going like we are here. We are living in a country where there are different sets of laws that have been applied to these people, and they're trying to build an entire system where that is made permanent. You know, like that, that is the stakes involved here. Meanwhile, in the actual Middle East, um, President Biden has reportedly decided to keep the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps on the foreign terrorist organization list, which is a Trump era sanction that will probably do nothing do in nothing. practice do to nothing. hurt Iran, but the, 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 will prevent Iran from getting back to the nuclear deal. This, this sanction it was put in place by Trump after he pulled out of the JCPOA precisely because it was meant to be politically difficult for a future Democratic president to lift this sanction to get back in the JCPOA. This sanction does fucking nothing. The mm. IRGC is not coming out with their hands up and saying, hey, we surrender, guys. We give up. We're, we're going to stop our malign behavior and give up our nuclear program because you put us on a list, okay? No, in fact. Whereas, <laughs> like, the JCPOA would roll back their nuclear program. So, given the choice, you have a choice. Do I keep a meaningless designation that has a political benefit in the United States, or do I roll back the Iranian nuclear program and avert a potential nuclear crisis in the Middle East, deciding that that designation is more important than that deal will never make any sense. Uh, Just so you know where I stand on that. In fact, the uh, the Iran, I think this week, uh, vowed revenge (laughs) in Israel for the assassination of Iranian colonel in Tehran. I guess this guy was linked to plots to kidnap Israeli diplomats abroad. Someone pulled up next to a motorcycle, shot into his car five times. He's dead. Now Iran's plotting their revenge. So yeah, it doesn't seem like the malign activities uh, have stopped. Uh, and then hopefully bu- they cave. By the way, I mean, like, I like. I know. Hopefully the Iranians still come in this deal. Like this could still have a good ending. I just, I don't think this sanction. I, I, people need to be making the point that it's that w- w- I'd like someone to lay out 
what has it been accomplished? Like, look at the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard's behavior before this sanction and after. Is anything different? No. Yeah. Uh, last thing on the Middle East, Biden is reportedly considering a visit to the Middle East in June. Uh, visit to Israel might be on the table and a meeting with Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the Saudi crown prince who likes bone saws and executing uh, American journalists. So it's not worth it. Depressing yeah. state uh, of affairs um, in terms of the political risk to Biden from high gas prices, at least in his advisor's heads, versus you know the risk of meeting with someone who is a sociopath. Yeah, I, I mean, I, like, I it's not worth it. <laughs> it's just yeah. not worth it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and and by the way, it's not like do we really think Mohammed Salman is going to solve our gas price problem? I you know. Uh, no, I think he's just going to wait it out for yeah. Trump to come back. Yeah, that's what he wants. Uh, Otherwise, he wouldn't be sinking two billion dollars into Jared Enterprises. Nope, yeah. nope. He's got his down payment in. Uh, last thing, Ben, did you see that ITV? got a hold of pictures of British Prime Minister Boris Johnson partying <laughs> during lockdown. ITV has been owning the story, I by did. the way. And there's like a lot of booze on the table. So he's boozing with like nine people. There's <laughs> bottles everywhere. He's raising a cl- literally doing a toast <laughs> with, with some bubbly. This rager was on November 13th, 2020. I think that is like almost <laughs> the exact day when Hannah and I canceled our flights to see her parents uh, for Thanksgivings. We knew it was unsafe. <laughs> it was a going away party for his communications director at Downing Street, who presumably knew that lockdown rules were in place. Place, and you were only allowed to mix two people from different households. Also, complicating this for Boris, the police find others who are at this rager, but not Boris. Boris got fined for being at a different rager. <laughs> the full official report on partying and culture at number 10 comes out this week. It could not be more obvious that Boris lied to Parliament and the British people. Here's a fun little clip of uh, how ITV described it. Have these photos taken the fizz out of his defense? Because <laughs> they call champagne. Oh, I didn't fizz. know that that clip was coming. That, that is so perfect. Uh, it I, seems like he's going to get away with it, though. Yeah, because he doesn't give a shit. There's like a bottomless absence of shame. I, I will, like what what is next? You're like, a, did you ever have those ragers in college where you had like the bathtub full of like the Everclear punchers? Oh, like I can literally see these guys like dipping. Like like sharing like some ex- yeah I, I don't know though yeah they're gonna come out with Boris Johnson at the ice <laughs> like swimming during yeah, lockdown like swimming in a hot tub full of booze with like a bunch of staffers I mean like what more do we need to establish that this guy broke the rules and thought there were one set of rules that applied to everybody else and I I, I don't know and what are these ragers like these Tory party. I mean, maybe they're fun. I don't know. Like, a, Well, we did read about all the cocaine. Well, maybe and, Madison uh, Cawthorn was a little confused. Maybe he was over there and they're doing key bumps in the bathroom, you know, uh, at Toya HQ. I don't know. Like, you just connected the dots for me. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty good. Um, okay. Well, you know, we exercise some demons. I'm sure the Daily Wire is going to have fun with this episode. Uh, when we come back, you will hear Ben's interview with Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield. So stick around for that. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. 
Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. I'm very pleased to be joined by the United States ambassador to the United Nations, a member of the Biden cabinet national security team, longtime uh, outstanding diplomat for our country, uh, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. I'm really delighted to be here. It's great to see you. Yeah. So I, I, I you know, there's so much you know going on up there, and obviously, uh, you know, the U.S. has had uh, a little extra work too uh, as uh, chair of the UN Security Council. Obviously, Ukraine is what people are focused on, and I want to get to a couple elements there. But I, I just want to, you know, people follow the developments on the ground in Ukraine. They follow military developments. Um, but I'm just curious if you could lay out for our listeners what is the center of gravity on Ukraine at the UN? What, what are you focused on up there? Uh, what aspects of the war um, are crossing your desk or uh, crossing the attention of the Security Council? Well, certainly uh, what we worked on uh, last week was food insecurity. That is a huge, huge issue. Uh, the food insecurity issue was an issue before Ukraine, but it has been made 10 times worse uh, by, uh, by the war. I've learned just uh, over the, the course, it's only been three months, believe it or not, but that Ukraine is really the breadbasket of the world. Uh, world Food Program purchased 50% of the wheat that they use for humanitarian programs in Ukraine. And Ukraine provides wheat to a number of countries in the Middle East, as well as Africa, that depend on somewhere around 35 to 40% of their wheat uh, requirements come from Ukraine, some come from Russia as well, and both Russia and Belarus are the main source of, of fertilizer. So that has become a huge issue in the midst of this uh, this horrific war, this horrific unconscionable attack on, on the Ukrainian people that we're watching on a daily basis. And uh, we have engaged on this issue in the Security Council. And you may be aware we actually took the vote to the General Assembly and got 141 uh, member states to condemn the Russians. 140 states uh, supported uh, Ukraine for humanitarian assistance. And then we were able to successfully suspend Russia from the Human Rights uh, Council. These are all extraordinary achievements. Uh, they have isolated the Russians here in the Security Council, and we're working with uh, our partners and, and colleagues in the Council, as well as in the General Assembly, to continue to put the pressure on the Russians to stop their unconscionable attack on the Ukrainian people. On the food insecurity issue, uh, a couple of questions. The first is, are, are there particular countries, regions that are facing kind of really acute challenges, risks of famine or places 
in the Horn of Africa or Ethiopia where there's already conflicts where, where this could make worse? What, what keeps you up at night in terms of the places that are most vulnerable to these disruptions? Well, we're certainly, uh, just to look at the Middle East, Lebanon is in critical condition as a result of this war uh, because they depended on the majority of their wheat from uh, Ukraine. uh, And the situation there has gotten decidedly worse since this war started. Uh, Somalia is uh, another country in the Horn of Africa uh, where we are on the verge of famine uh, because of the lack of, uh, of wheat. Ethiopia, in the midst of a conflict, depended upon uh, Ukrainian wheat as well. Uh, So there are a number of countries and regions that have been impacted. We hosted a ministerial in um, New York, um, chaired by uh, Secretary Blinken, and brought together about 30 countries who signed on to an action plan to address food insecurity. And again, we know food insecurity has been impacted by the pandemic. It's been impacted by climate change, but the impact that this uh, war has had uh, is extraordinary. For example, there are 22 million tons of wheat sitting in silos in Ukraine that can't move. 84 ships sitting in the Black Sea that the Russians have blockaded in the Black Sea that can't move. They're trapped in the in the ports uh, in Odessa uh, port. So this is uh, this is having a, a serious serious impact on on food insecurity. And in terms of solution, I mean, you've got the Russians literally, as you said, blocking uh, wheat and other material from getting out. Then you've got. I think a challenge from some countries that, that tend to hoard their food supplies, particularly when there's global shortages. And then there's just a question of, the, is there any ramp up in capacity that can come from other places? I mean, what is the the formula that you all are pursuing globally uh, to try to address these shortages? Uh, and, and, and what tools do we have to, to bring to bear for that? Well, first and foremost, we're encouraging countries not to restrict exports, not to shut down their, their exports. There are a number of countries that have taken those those decisions, and we're engaging with them on a regular basis to uh, discourage them from taking uh, these decisions. Uh, secondly, we are looking at other sources of uh, product that uh, might come from other regions and encouraging countries to uh, look at those other sources. And then as more a response to the crisis, we have ramped up our humanitarian uh, assistance uh, uh, in response to the situation in Ukraine. As you may have heard, the president just signed uh, a bill providing $44 billion in assistance, and a significant portion of that will be going toward humanitarian assistance, while some of it, of course, will be supporting the Ukrainians uh, effort to defend themselves against the uh, against the Russians. So I, I want to ask you kind of a broader question, which is that, you know, look, I, the eight years I was in government, um, the Russians in particular became more, I think, aggressive in utilizing their veto and their role in the UN system to obstruct uh, progress, including on, on Syria, which I was going to get to in a second here. But, you know, Ukraine, I think, is really spotlighted this. And there's nothing, you know, you or anybody could do about the fact that, you know, literally 
the day the invasion starts, uh, I think we all remember the Russians are like sitting in the chair of the Security Council, kind of embodied as the, the president kind of, of the Security the pre- Council. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it, it, nothing could more starkly demonstrate the way in which the, the international system that was built to prevent these kinds of conflicts, to prevent the kind of famine that is coming out of these conflicts, that, that the Russians are just sitting there throwing wrenches in the gears, stopping it from doing what the United Nations is supposed to do. Um, is there like a conversation about, is there a reform that can deal with that? Is there is there a process by which the UN can free itself to some extent from from this? Or, or does that just require such a radical uh, <laughs> redesign um, of something that is 75 years old that, that it's difficult to think of on a day-to-day basis? Not so radical. I uh, two things have, have happened since this situation occurred. One, uh, we have, in a sense, marginalized uh, the uh, uh, Russians. We've blunted their veto power by going to the General Assembly. And we've seen the General Assembly actually rise to, to the challenge. And none of us, I will honestly admit, expected that we would get 141 member states supporting a condemnation of the Russians. When we went into the room, our goal was to get 100. And 141 uh, was extraordinary. And then we were able to maintain that by getting 140 countries to express uh, support for the Ukrainian people. The third thing that has happened that is unusual in the area of Security Council reform. The government of Liechtenstein proposed a resolution that called for members of the P5, when using their veto, to have to come to the General Assembly and explain to other member states why they found it necessary to use their veto. And we co sponsored that uh, along with other countries. We co sponsored that, uh, that resolution. And so it puts pressure on the Russians to have to come and explain themselves before the General Assembly. So I think that kind of action may not have been possible prior to this Russian attack on the core values of of the UN system. And there are other discussions that are taking place uh, related to uh, UN reform. and, And we think those discussions have gotten a bit more exposure and support uh, because of the current situation that we were in uh, in the Security Council. But what the what has happened is that, uh, again I, I use this over and over. Russia has been isolated. They went into this war thinking that they would defeat the Ukrainians in a matter of two weeks. Uh, they thought they would divide and and break up NATO, and that they would uh, divide the the uh, Europeans broadly. And what they've done is actually bolstered NATO's resolve. They have uh, strengthened our alliances with our European colleagues, and they have kind of given the Ukrainians a lot of courage. And uh, the Ukrainians have, have been able to defend themselves against this onslaught in ways that the Russians didn't expect. And I don't, I'm not even sure when uh, the Ukrainians went into this, that they uh, realized the strength and resolve and courage that they were going to bring uh, to this fight. 
Yeah, I, you know, just uh, that's an interesting adjustment in the international system that, that bears watching is just trying to find ways to to move the center of gravity to the General Assembly, to other parts of the international system. Uh, you know, ad hoc coalitions, obviously, they include NATO, uh, really featuring in, in the uh, Ukraine context. I wanted to ask you about Syria because I know you've been focused on this. I know there was a lot of work you did diplomatically to, to keep a degree of humanitarian access open um, into Syria. I know that the U.S. has been pledging additional humanitarian assistance. People, I think, have, you know, lost sight of this uh, of this conflict and the suffering that of the Syrian people, given all of, of the other world events that consume our attention. W- what is the current state of, of the U.S. role in Syria? Um, and what have you been focused on through, through the U.N.? You know, we have not forgotten about Syria. Uh, the dire humanitarian situation uh, facing millions of, of Syrians remain a significant priority for us. As you know, last year I went to Turkey to the Syrian border to, one, just get a sense of the situation on the ground. So I met with NGOs, I met with the UN, I met with the White Helmets, uh, I met with refugees and really was able to come back to New York grounded in the situation. Uh, We were able to succeed in negotiating with the Russians to get them to agree to a 12-month extension of the one last border, El Ahawa, and that border extension is going to expire on the 10th of July. Uh, So I am planning to go again uh, before the extension expires to update myself on the situation on the ground. One thing the Russians asked for last year that we gave them was an agreement that we would do more cross-line distributions of humanitarian assistance. And that effort has worked somewhat. We've had four efforts and and we were able to access about 40,000 people. But that only is a mere compliment to the millions of people we're feeding cross-line. And so we have to keep cross-line open. And what I've said to the Russians and I will say to the Syrians is that this is in their interest because they don't want to see millions of people go into to starvation because they're going to feel the impact of this as much as, as others uh, have. I also, just a few weeks ago, was in Brussels and we announced an additional $800 million in humanitarian assistance to NGOs and the UN working on uh, Syrian uh, humanitarian programs. So we have not forgotten Syrians. Even in the face of dealing with Ukraine on a daily basis, Syria keeps me awake at night, uh, along with a lot of other uh, world issues. I also certainly think about every day what the DPRK is going to do and and how we respond to that. Uh, We're engaging on a regular basis with all of the Security Council members to include Russia and China on uh, on how we respond to, to that situation. And what's it like when you have an issue like North Korea, like you mentioned, where, you know, you're working, as you say, kind of with Russia in a group. Uh, I mean, how has that changed since the war in Ukraine started? I mean, you know, the, is it frostier? Is it, um, is it more difficult on other issues? Like has, has the war in Ukraine 
spilled over in other issues, or maybe it should, frankly, given the, the fact that the Russians have placed themselves so far outside of, of any international norms? I mean, we, we're not engaging business as usual with the Russians, but we know we have to engage with them because we're sitting uh, at the table with them in the, the Security Council. They're a member of the Security Council. That's a fact. It's a fact that we can't change. So we have to work with them on, on uh, some of these difficult issues. And I'm hopeful on the issue of Syria that we will get them to agree that it is important that we continue to keep this one border crossing open and that we consider reopening a couple of the other crossings that uh, were closed previously because this is important. And uh, so I'm willing to engage with them on this issue despite uh, or in spite of uh, our uh, disgust uh, with uh, what they are doing uh, in Ukraine. And I'm, you know, just as we wrap up here, I, a couple of broader questions of just, you know, is there an issue that um, you feel like particularly passionate about pursuing through your role at the UN that, that may not be getting, you know, the headline attention globally? I mean, I, I do remember just so many things that had a center of gravity at the UN where you could really make a difference on either addressing a crisis or just trying to, to make affirmative progress, you know, whether it's on uh, LGBT rights or whether it's on um, some other aspect of, um, uh, you know, just trying to, to take a, a country that needed that extra assistance from the international community. I mean, what, what, are, the, what are the one or two things that, that y- you would like people to know about that you're working on that, um, uh, that are escaping attention? Well, you know, broadly, uh, Ben, I am really grounded in the humanitarian space. And yeah. so I do focus a tremendous amount of, of attention on humanitarian issues, on engaging with NGOs and making sure that NGOs get the recognition that they deserve here in the United Nations. So whenever we have uh, events where we are are in the chair, we make sure that we have NGOs that are uh, are recognized to come and and brief the Security Council. We want to make sure that women are also invited in uh, a consistent way. So we hosted, for example, one of our signature events uh, early this week on digital uh, technology. And uh, we had an amazing young woman uh, in the tech field uh, from Kenya come and brief the Security Council. So when I look at what is important to me, in addition to all of the things that are important to all of us, I want to make sure that we don't let any humanitarian situation uh, be left unnoticed and that we deal with the situation in Ethiopia, that we continue to focus attention on the situation in Burma, that we focus attention on what is happening with the Uyghurs in China, that Yemen not be forgotten. So it's a huge, huge agenda of humanitarian issues. And for me, every single one uh, is important. So I find myself uh, running on a treadmill uh, because I try to do it all. 
yeah, yeah. because I, I don't think anything should be forgotten. And Secretary Blinken uh, coined this uh, acronym ROWING, uh, the rest of the world. We cannot forget the rest of the world. And I take that very, very seriously, that Ukraine is important, but the rest of the world is important as well. And what is happening on the humanitarian front in, in Africa and in Burma and Yemen, uh, all of these are issues that we have to keep in the in the forefront. Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, I, I, oftentimes the rest of the world ends up falling in, into the uh, leadership of the UN ambassador, you know, when White House gets consumed with things. So it, I'm glad to hear that, that perspective. Are you are you liking the job? Are you making gumbo for your uh, your counterparts? Are you uh, are you enjoying living in New York City? Uh, how how is it? I love the job. I'm still getting used to living in uh, New York City. It's been an adjustment coming to New York. I came in the middle of uh, uh, COVID, so the yeah. first six months everything was done uh, remotely. So I didn't meet my team. I didn't meet my staff. I chaired my first presidency of the Security Council remotely. Uh, so that has required some adjustment. But I am making gumbo uh, <laughs> and uh, looking forward to sharing it with you and, and, and others <laughs> because I think it's an important way of engaging with people uh, when you can sit again over a good meal and talk about tough issues. Uh, so people relax and and they are particularly impressed when they know that I've cooked the meal myself and didn't have it catered or didn't use uh, my really wonderful uh, chef that comes with uh, yeah. uh, with the uh, apartment. Uh, it impresses them that I actually uh, make uh, a meal and, and serve to them. Yeah, well, that's good. It's great to hear that. And uh, I, I just tell you, I. I've taken a stab at gumbo a bunch of times, um, and getting that first, you know, that first bit right, you know, is <laughs> quite well, there's important. A and, uh, the root, there's you know, a recipe yeah. in the Washington Post. Uh, it's my recipe. I, 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 I actually, when I gave the Washington Post the recipe, I made it up as I uh, was. Uh, I made it up to send to them, and then I tried it after I sent it to. Oh, to them. that's a risk. Yeah. And, Oh, it was good. It, it was good. good. It, it was pretty good, and and many people have written to me to say they tried the recipe, uh, including uh, Senator Kane from uh, Virginia, who said he tried it. He just didn't know what to do with all the gumbo because you can't make gumbo for four. You know, no, you no, have to make gumbo it's... for twelve. And yeah. So yeah. Uh, try my my recipe in the Washington Post. It'll work for you. All right, I'm on it. Uh, well, thanks so much for joining and uh, really appreciate it and best of luck with everything going forward. Uh, thank you so much, Ben. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Okay, thank you again to Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield for joining the show. Ben, I have two things I wanted to tell the listeners to read because we didn't have time to cover. It's hard to cover long stories. One is the New York Times did an amazing reporting on Haiti and how the country was forced to pay reparations to the French, their former enslavers, and then take out loans from French banks, which just like compounded the interest over time and amazing reporting. Uh, And then the BBC and a bunch of other outlets, I think, just published a bunch of new documents and photos that detail um, the crimes against humanity against the Uyghurs by the Chinese government. So oh, two important that, things to read. That, yeah. And then last question for you. You're currently on one of the 
funniest reply all mishaps I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. yeah. Last message (laughs) was from Noam Chomsky (laughs) to about 300 people. (laughs) How's that going? I I had to say, like, I I fired up the (laughs) Wi-Fi on on my flight, and um, I see, like, an all-caps email from Noam Chomsky, which, to begin with, kind of gets your attention. Yeah. But then I realized that somebody had, like, sent him some, like, open letter. You know, they didn't like something Noam Chomsky said. But they didn't do the BCC thing. They did the thing where you Brutal. list every email address. Brutal. And there, let me just say there are, like, current cabinet officials on this thing. They're all manner of, like, NSC types and, you know. Journalists. Journalists. And uh, and these are, like, Gmails and stuff, too. So uh, there, I, there was an email address allegedly for Boris Johnson on there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, 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 you know, some assistants, you know, are checking these emails and like, what the hell is going on here? Uh, there's nothing like being on an accidental CC instead of BCC, especially with old people, because inevitably someone gets pissed off and replies all, please remove me from this chain. And that just sets off a chain of angry events from boomers. And it's just the funniest some, thing ever. Some people just do the reply all too, like just kind of unself-aware. I will say... I live in fear of doing this, and I did it once. I didn't do the B. I thought I'd cut and pasted my contacts into the BCC. I did it in the CC, and it was super embarrassing. Um, it happens to the best of us. Yeah, it's always a great way to farm some great email addresses. You know what? I am going through there actually, and maybe updating my contacts. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I see you, Jerome Powell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Noam Chomsky. Like okay. you and I are taking this offline. You know, Noam. Now we're friends. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, uh, that's it for today. Uh, good luck with your inbox. And, yeah. Uh, talk to you soon. See you. Positive World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support and to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes as videos at youtube.com slash crooked media. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.